welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Welcome to you. Glad that you're here. If we haven't met, uh, we are in a series called Lost in Translation. Through the summer, we've been looking at difficult passages in the Bible, and we've we've decided to stick with Jesus uh, this time around. So, as you, if you've read much of Jesus, you know he has no shortage of cryptic and bizarre things that he says. So we're just tackling them one at a time. Last week, my friend Ben preached about the Good Samaritan, this, you know, well-known story. Many of us have heard it uh, probably many times. But uh, this masterful story that Jesus tells, a bit of a setup in some ways, right? Like you kind of think, oh, you know who the hero is going to be in the story, and then bam, kind of sucker punches you. It's who you'd least expect, right? It's the outsider. It's the... Uh, <clears throat> The sworn enemy, the other, who ends up being the person who shows mercy to the wounded man. And I think it's somewhat indicative of the gospel of Jesus and the kingdom of God that that this Jesus guy talks about all the time. It's somewhat surprising, uh, maybe a little arresting if we let it, uh, but certainly surprising to those who heard it first. And and then again and again and again, these stories seem to cut through all the, the chatter Uh, and sort of say something, and I think that that may be the case this morning. I hope. So, in 1993, a band named Weezer wrote a song (laughs) that sort of changed the landscape of the music in the 90s for many. Uh, In some ways, it put Weezer on the map for those who weren't paying attention. It was called uh, Undone. Undone. Many people call it the sweater song. I'd like to just formally let you know that it's actually titled Undone. But the chorus goes like this. If you want to destroy my sweater, just hold this thread as I walk away. Watch me unravel and I'll soon be naked. Lying on the floor, I've come undone. Now you might be wondering, Micah, what on earth does this have to do with Jesus? And I would say uh, everything. Uh, This song paints a beautiful picture, right? You've all done this where you find a thread on your clothes or whatever and you pull it and you're like, oh no, it's connected to everything else I'm wearing in this shirt, right? It's all connected. It's all one. And like the more you pull, the more the thing just, and and then that's the song, right? Like hold this thread and I'll walk away and it'll just unravel. I want to suggest that what we're about to read is a thread that Matthew has been using to weave a story about Jesus throughout the entirety of his gospel. And in this moment, in chapter 21, verses 13 and 14, if you pull on this thread, you begin to see, it sort of unravels in front of you about the kingdom of God and what Matthew is arguing that Jesus is all about, as as opposed to what we're seeing uh, uh, exemplified and embodied by the people of God, air quotes, and the church, or, or the temple, as it were, in that case, So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you a little bit of background on this passage, then I want to give you a couple of options to interpret it that I don't think are bad options, but I want to zoom out a little bit and see if we pull this thread, what unravels and what we learn about the kingdom of God. Does that sound good? Okay, and then I would highly recommend you go home and watch the YouTube video of Undone by Weezer. It's a great piece of art. Uh, Please stand if you can. John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah, 
Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground while others cut branches and trees and spread them on the road. This is why, by the way, churches do this where they wave branches. That's where this comes from, in case you're wondering. The crowds went that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Those are our two verses. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Of course, right? Everybody loves Jesus and the kids love him too, so the religious people are angry. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. Pray with me. God, as we come this morning, uh, we recognize that there's a lot of different things present in this room. Uh, Joy and excitement, sadness, confusion, anxiety, anxiety. It's all present and it's all here. And so I pray that by your spirit, you would be Emmanuel, not just a theological idea that we affirm in our heads, but that we would sense you and um, experience you as real to the very depths of our soul, that we would, we would know in a mysterious and, and divine way that you are present to us in this moment. So speak a word, God, speak a word of hope, a word of encouragement. Give us a vision for who you've called us to be and who you are inviting us to be this morning, I pray. And all God's people said together, amen. You may be seated if you will. I mean, I suppose you can stand, but a um, little bit of background, a couple of options, and then let's pull a thread. Background, where are we in Matthew? Um, you should know that three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called the Synoptic Gospels, all have this story in them. John is sort of, do you remember in Sesame Street, one of these things is doing their own thing? You remember that? That's kind of John all the time. Uh, of the Gospels. He's sort of out there. Beautiful, wonderful book. Says a lot of amazing things. But um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke often are sharing material. And so all three Gospels have this story where Jesus goes into the temple and and flips the table. But they tell it in, excuse me, they tell it in different ways in some some cases. Uh, They all have Zechariah 9, which is this passage about the the prophet speaking about a king who would come. And when he comes, he'll be coming on on a colt, a donkey. They all have that, but that's sort of where they diverge. Uh, Luke adds a part where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Uh, He's up on the Mount of Olives, and he's looking over Jerusalem, and he's weeping and saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had only known what would bring you peace, and if you had said yes to that, my heart breaks for you. Uh, Luke adds that. None of the others do. Um, Luke has no mention of the fig tree, which Matthew and Mark do. Mark puts the entrance to the city in the temple showdown on two different days. So he enters the city, and he checks things out in Mark, and then he goes to sleep, and he comes back the next day and has the temple showdown. 
Um, and then Mark actually does this sandwich thing where he'll take two different ideas or two different um, scenes, we'll call them A and B, and he'll go A, B, A. So in Mark, we get the fig tree. They're walking up to the temple, and they're like, oh, there's this fig tree, and Jesus curses it. It's withered because it it has no fruit. And then the temple showdown happens, and he flips the temple, and he critiques the temple. And then they're walking out on their way, and Jesus explains why the fig tree has been withered and cursed. So it's as if Mark is using these two different examples or these two different scenes to speak to one another, right? There's a critique that's happening between the two, and the fig tree is somewhat emblematic or symbolic of what's happening in the temple, that may it never bear fruit again. Um, Matthew is a bit more linear. He, he writes with this one thread. Uh, in fact, Matthew, this is the only time Jesus comes to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Matthew, whereas in Mark and Luke, he's kind of coming back and forth. Matthew kind of like tells the story in this way, where it's all kind of surrounding Jerusalem and the temple and the people of God, and it's getting closer and closer and closer until like the showdown happens, like this is the main event, main event in Matthew. That's where we are. Uh, And Jesus has now entered the city, right? He's come up from Jericho, up the the, the road that leads to the temple. The Psalms say we ascend the hill of the Lord literally from Jericho to Jerusalem is a massive ascent. And so they're walking up and they get to Jerusalem and now Jesus enters the city. People are screaming and yelling. They're, They're waving palm branches. And now he enters the temple. And the whole thing is is moving towards and coming to this point where Jesus is having a showdown with the temple and the religious leaders. But why the temple? Like, what's so big? De- what's the big deal about that? The temple for Israel is the absolute center of religious life. It's the center of civic life. It's the center of national and political life, the temple. It's a symbol of the glory days of Israel in some ways. You, back, you remember back when, have you guys ever been to that bar, or that, that high school reunion where people are like, do you remember back when we were doing this? And people are like, oh my gosh, you're still doing that. Grow up. <laughs> it's like the glory days of Israel. The temple is the symbol of like the highest of highs in Israel's history when David was the king and nobody else was ruling and the Romans were in Rome and the Assyrians were in Assyria and God was, you know, over and... and Israel was on its own. Like, that's, that's the temple. That's the symbol. Uh, it's the symbol of religious and institutional power for Israel. It's, this, uh, it's a symbol, like an eschatological symbol, so a, a symbol of a future hope that God would return to Israel now that the Romans have occupied them. So they look to the temple as this symbol of what God has promised in the future, that he would return through a Messiah, a king, an anointed one, and, like, kick out the enemies of God and, and send them packing and restore what what had been so the the temple is a symbol of that it's synonymous with israel and yahweh and sacrifice and religion and everything that was the people of god the hebrews uh for us in america in 2019 it's like it's the statue of liberty for the project called america right like a symbol that sort of is iconic to all the things that america is supposed to be about that's the temple everybody tracking now that's where we are Matthew has brought Jesus into the city, the capital, and now into the temple. And he says these things. He flips over this table. He says, my house is a house of prayer. You're a den of robbers. And then this lame and blind thing. So a couple of interpretive options before I get to what I want to say. Uh, unfair and unjust profit by the temple. Like why, Some people look at this incident, and the reason why Jesus is so hacked off is because uh, uh, connected to predatory practices by those selling, um, changing money in the temple and selling animals in the temple. For those that don't know, 
If you come to the temple to worship, you have to have something to sacrifice. In the book of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers, it's spelled out. Very, very particular, very, very structured. This sacrifice for this, you've got to do it this way. It has to be unblemished. It's got to be one year old, da-da-da-da-da. Lots of rules and regulations on what you can actually bring to sacrifice, right? Now, it's Passover in our text. So during um, the normal time of the year, Jerusalem would... 30,000 people or so in this time. During Passover, 180,000 people would come in this tiny little city. So people are coming from all, like, weeks and, and days away they're traveling with their, friend, uh, their family and their animals. And if one brought something to sacrifice, there's a very high likelihood that your child would, like, pluck its feathers on the way for entertainment or, you know, you ever, no? Okay. Imagine little kids and chickens or whatnot, like, the things you could do with chickens in days with nothing to do, right? So there's a very good chance that your unblemished sacrifice may become blemished along the way. Lucky for you, friends, the temple will provide you with the opportunity to buy unblemished sacrifices so that you can sacrifice them in the temple. Uh, we've seen this before. Essentially, you've got the very thing needed for worship in the temple, and just so happens that it's provided by the temple right? It's, it's simple economics. You've got all these people, they need something for sacrifice, and it just so happens that I, who run the temple, can offer this to you. So a lot of people believe that the sale of animals and the exchange of money was inflated, uh, like predatory, egregious, and people were making money hand over fist on the worship of God. Huh. It's a good thing there are no parallels in our life for that kind of thing. Okay, wake up, 11, wake up. Uh, so the, the temple was profiting from this, and many people believe that like, the worship of God was now a profitable commercial endeavor, and the people who were in charge of the commerce were also in charge of the temple. Uh, I don't think this is a bad reading of the text. I think it's, it's, it could very well be part of the reason why Jesus was upset. I want to zoom out a little bit, and I want to connect what I'm going to say or how we're going to read this really through Matthew's eyes in specific. When you read a gospel... They tell different stories and they include different things because they're doing something different, each of them as writers. Matthew, in this moment, is telling a very large story. And while that may be true historically, it's not his primary focus. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, another way people read this is like, some believe that where, where you bought the animals would have moved or it recently changed. So the temple was like a concentric uh, rectangle of... Uh, that went from specific to general. So places where everybody could gather and anyone could gather, Jews, Gentiles, pagans, doesn't matter, to a very specific place where only one person one time a year could go, the high priest into the Holy of Holies, right? So it was very concentric in that sense. Some would argue that where you bought the, the animals, the doves, and exchanged the money was in a very general place, and it moved to a more specific place, which was then putting some people out in their worship of God. So ironically enough, the very thing that was supposed to enable people to worship God was actually becoming a barrier to people worshiping God. Again, no parallels. I want to zoom out. What is Matthew doing in this passage specifically? Verses 13 and 14 hold the key, and I think this is the beginning of us pulling the thread that sort of unravels or opens the curtain on what Matthew's up to as it relates to the kingdom. So here we go. Remember where we are. Jesus has just entered the city. He's on a donkey. People are screaming, Hosanna, son of David, right? What has Matthew just said in that moment? 
If you're a good Jew and you know your Old Testament, you know he's connected two things, Zechariah 9 and David. Zechariah 9 is this prophecy that the king would return, the Messiah would return, and when he did, he'd be on a, on a colt, a donkey riding into the city, gentle. And then he says, and these people are shouting, they're, they're chanting, Hosanna, the son of David. David is the, the highest king, the best king of Israel's history, and everybody knows that the Messiah would come from the line of David. So what has Matthew just said? Jesus is your guy, right? He's the one. He's Neo. He's the one that everyone's been waiting for, who's going to like return to Israel and do what God will do. Now, we'll get to in a minute all kinds of ideas as to what God would do when Neo, Jesus, came back. Be that as it may, we'll get there in a second. So Jesus enters the city, then he enters the temple, right? So now we are in the heart and soul of Israel, the very uh, epicenter of what it means to be a Jew in the first century when Jesus is alive. Everybody tracking? My house will be called a house of prayer. Jesus goes into the city, into the temple. He starts flipping over tables, which I, top five moments in scripture that I wish I could have been there for. This would have just been fantastic, you know? Chris Farley, you guys remember the Saturday Night Live? He's, he's interviewing Martin Scorsese, who d- did The Last Temptation of Christ. He's like, hey, do you remember that one time when you were in the temple and you like flipped over the tables? Did you think of that? Did you write that? So Jesus is in there, he's like going bonkers, he's going ape crazy, he flips tables, he's yelling at people, and he says, my house will be a house of prayer, and they're all like, duh, like we already know that, no big surprise, but it's actually what Jesus doesn't say, that's the bomb in this sentence. There's a little phrase called metalepsis, I'd like to introduce you to it. Metalepsis is as follows, a figure of speech or a known story that's used to say something new. So if I said to you, uh, tomorrow, I'm going to, uh, I've got to go get the worm. I've got to get the worm tomorrow. You all know that I'm referencing the early bird gets the worm, right? So I've got to wake up early and get some stuff done. Metalepsis. I've used a turn of phrase, a figure of speech, a known idea, and I'm saying something somewhat new. And I don't even have to say the whole thing, but you all get what I'm saying. You tracking? This is what Jesus does in this passage. He says, my house will be a house of prayer, which is no, okay, fine. It's what he leaves out. Isaiah chapter 56, the prophet writes to the people of Israel, and he gives this, I'm going to read the whole thing because it's so beautiful and stunning. Starting in verse 1 to verse 7, he says this. This is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation, keep that in mind, my salvation is close at hand. It's coming. And, uh, sorry, we'll go back one. My righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds fast to it, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner, outsider, excluded, no, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, like I am only a dry tree. I'll have no descendants. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. By the way, the people of God, the Israelites, were called the sons and daughters of God. So the sexual minorities who hold fast to the covenants are given a name greater than that. The foreigners, the ethnic minorities, 
are, who bind themselves to the Lord to minister, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, who keep his Sabbaths, who hold fast to my covenant. What happens to them? They're kept out. Next slide. No, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house is called a house of prayer for who? The religious, the insider, the one who keeps all the rules, the Jew, the Israelite, the holy. No, for all nations, anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord gets a seat at the table. Friends, what is so bizarre and what is so interesting about what Jesus says? He says this is what the temple is supposed to be. This is what Israel was supposed to be from the beginning. The whole time it was supposed to be. My house is a house of prayer for the holy, the insider, the... No, for any and all. When salvation, by the dancing way, verse 1 of of Isaiah 56, when salvation, my salvation comes. Does anyone know the Hebrew word for salvation? Yeshua. (laughs) You can't make it up. When Jesus comes, when Yeshua, salvation comes, here's what happens. The table gets smaller. And we exclude people who think differently than we do. Even ones who call on the name of the Lord, we kick them out and ask them to leave. No! Any and all who call upon the name of the Lord is my brother and my sister in Christ, in God. Come on now. Podcasting to the covenant at 8303. Any and all. Jesus says, he says nothing, but he says everything, doesn't he? My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. But you, you have turned it into a den of thieves, a den of robbers, also translated a lair for brigands. What a great word. (laughs) Who says that anymore? Ah, So you're making it a den of robbers. So you have Jesus. He enters the city. Then he enters the temple, flips over the table. He says, salvation, when it comes to Israel, which it is coming in right now on a donkey in my name, my house and its rule will be a place of welcome and inclusion and embrace for any and all who call upon the name of the Lord. But you, you're making it a den of robbers. If, in fact, he's referencing something in the first sentence, half of the sentence, right, Isaiah 56, one could conclude he's referencing something in the second half, right, good Bible readers as you are, Jeremiah chapter 7, a critique from the weeping prophet, who is calling out the people of God, Israel, the temple, the establishment, and in this rail against them about all the ways in which they have missed the forest for the trees, he says this in verse 9, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to unknown gods? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. (laughs) It's getting hot in her. Jesus says, you have made it into a den of robbers. And he is absolutely referencing Jeremiah chapter 7. And all the good Jews in the place would have known it. Which is a critique 
to say and do all of these things in the name of God, but when the poor aren't fed and the, the marginalized are continued to be excluded and the gap between the rich and poor keeps getting bigger and you stand here in my name and do these detestable things? There were all kinds of people who had all kinds of reasons to think that God was on their side when Jesus was around, right? And again, I'm so glad that we don't have any parallels here about all kinds of people thinking God is on their side. Like that God, God is with us and our interpretation of said verse, or God is with us and our political affiliation, or God is with us and our policies on immigration, or God is with us and our whatever. Israel was waiting for a Messiah, a promised person who would come and restore, reveal, uh, reestablish, bring about a new rule and a new reign. And they had all kinds of ideas about what that would look like. The den of robbers, the lair of brigands, is a reference to a group of people who might be called revolutionaries who thought by power and by sword we're going to show the love of God. Which is so dumb when you say it out loud, right? Like, we're going to bring the love of God by the sword. And we've been doing this for like 2,000 years. Be that as it may, there were people in Jesus' day who thought, by the sword, we're going to put God back on his throne. But how would this king come? And how would this kingdom, this rule and reign, this way of being human happen? And what would it look like when it did? Jesus is essentially saying the brigand, the revolutionary who thought that it would come by power and by force, domination through military and economic power, it's not going to happen that way. As the most powerful military force in the world and arguably one of the most economically prosperous people in the world, that should have something to say to us as Americans. What does it look like when the rule and reign of God comes to us? It doesn't look like military strength and economic prowess and, and prosperity. It just doesn't. Matthew and the story that he's telling about Jesus is not one of domination or superiority, either by military or economics or even religious adherence or holiness. He's using a completely different thread, folks. And it is an upside-down one. The whole thing gets put on its head. And the economy and the currency of the kingdom of God, this rule and this reign that Jesus is bringing, riding in on a donkey, not a chariot, duh, is one of sacrificial love for your enemies, sacrifice of self for the betterment of other, even your sworn enemy, the other, fill in the blank. If we can't get that and we don't see that, we are not reading the gospel. And if you think I'm crazy, I'll just offer you this. Matthew is the only writer who includes the next line. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Seems so bizarre. Seems kind of like random, like, beep, just pull that in. But if you know your Old Testament history and you know the story of David and you know the story in the history of the city, Jerusalem and the temple, you know exactly what he's done. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 and 8 tell this story about David before Jerusalem was the capital city. Did you know that David, the brilliant military leader, decided, hey, let's not pick a city that's already established, owned and, owned and operated by one of the two kingdoms. Let's pick a neutral site so no one can claim it as theirs. 
So he finds this beautiful little spot up on top of a hill on a rock outcropping, easy to defend, very difficult to attack, with an artesian water spring in the middle of it. Brilliant, right? This is the story. The king and his men marched on to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who were occupying the city then. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. So essentially, all the regular people at the watchtowers, they were out getting donuts. So the Jebusites put the blind and the lame up there, thinking that even they could defend the city against David and his attackers. Like, you're such a great king, we're going to put our blind and lame up there to defend ourselves against you. That's how much we think of you. So... Here's what it says. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. He sends people up through the artesian water springs inside the city, so they get them from the inside out. (laughs) Boom! On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach them, the lame and the blind, who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. Why does Matthew include this little nugget of information? (laughs) Maybe for a couple of reasons. One, to show the kind of king Jesus is and to show the opposition to all the temple and all that Israel and the temple and its institution has stood for and become embodied uh, and is about. Israel was supposed to be a city on a hill, a light that could not be hidden, a hope for all nations, a blessing for everyone all the way back from Abraham. I will bless you so that you and your family get blessed. You and your insiders get blessed. No, so the whole world gets blessed. When salvation, Yeshua, comes in its fullness, you can expect the table to get bigger and bigger, not smaller and smaller. You could expect Samaritans and sexual minorities, eunuchs and ethnic outsiders and immigrants and women and children and weak and disenfranchised, even the lame and the blind who have been held out of the temple because of David's fragile ego, they come to Jesus into the temple, and he doesn't kick them out or think less of them. He heals them, and he welcomes them. (laughs) What happens when something is meant for one thing, and it becomes the opposite? What happens when someone has a dream or a vision for something and then that thing becomes the very opposite of what it was intended to be? Jesus starts flipping tables and gets really pissed, especially when that thing is supposed to be about welcome and embrace and love and forgiveness, and mercy, and justice. He has his sights set, like the temple is in Jesus' crosshairs. Why? Because the very thing that was intended to be hope and joy and blessing for all the world had become an insider club where folks were excluded, the marginalized were continued to be marginalized, the oppressed continued to be oppressed, The gap between the rich and the poor kept getting bigger. Those who were on the outside continued to be on the outside. And those who were on the inside sat piously hoping and waiting for God to return to their party. And Jesus is like, I'm not coming. I'm going to a different party. And it's got all the people you think are invited to yours. 
I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to leave this up to you today. I'm not going to like connect dots for you. I'm just going to ask a couple of really pointed questions. It's unfortunate. My name is Micah, and in the Bible, I was a prophet. And it never goes well for the prophet. They always die because people don't want to hear what they have to say. Arguably, Jesus was a prophet. And people didn't want to hear what he had to say. But he always said, he who has ears, let him hear. She who has eyes to see, let her see. What do you hear? What do you see? What kind of kingdom, what kind of rule and reign, what kind of, let's use different language, hopes and dreams does God have for this world? And are there any ways in which we're participating in systems or governments or workplaces or denominations that have, were intended for one thing that have become something else? Which side of the table do you want to be on? Don't follow blindly like lemmings to the sea. Ask hard questions. I don't care what your politics are on immigration, but you should have some thoughts about what our current status is. When we have inscribed on a symbol in the harbor of New York, bring me your immigrants, your lame, your poor. Bring them to me. I will welcome them. And then we have pictures of kids in cages on a border. Like, you, you, you should probably just stop and ask some, some tough questions. I'm not telling you what your politics should be. I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm not telling you what you should think about immigration. I'm just going to hold up two pictures a vision of what a country could be about, and then current actions. And I would just ask you to answer the question, is that consistent? When the church of Jesus Christ, a, a guy who walks into the establishment and says, this isn't the party, it's actually outside with all the poor and marginalized and the lame and the blind and the beggars, they're blessed. Why? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom. Why? Because they know I'm with them. One of my friends wrote a song that said, if you're going to make me choose, I'm with them. I think that's what Jesus says. So to the church of Jesus, to the denomination called the Evangelical Covenant, to your family, to your workplace, I would ask a couple of simple questions. Who is Jesus? And what was he about? And do you... Follow that person. And if so, let's ask some questions about the way in which we organize our lives and the things that we say yes to and the ways in which we spend our money and how we vote and how we parent and how we welcome each other and people who are different than us, right? It's all on the table. And I would just say, to close, it seems very clear. It's not hard to get there. That when the love of God comes, when salvation comes in full, we open up. We don't get smaller. The table gets bigger, not smaller. It's just, it's really simple. So what's my job? What's your job? If I follow Jesus, my job is to ascribe worth and value to you. Why? Because you're made in the image of God. That's my job. That's your job. When you meet someone who's different than you, who votes differently than you, who you find, like, maddening, your job is to ascribe worth and value to them. Not to judge them, not to cast them out, not to say you're in or you're out. No, no, that's not your job, that's not my job, that's not even the church's job, that's the job of the divine. 
And so my job is just only to love. To say, you are my neighbor, my brother, my sister, in whom the image of God is present. And so I recognize that. Ironically, people have all kinds of thoughts about yoga, like namaste. I see the light in you. I honor it. That's all it's saying. If you are made in the image of God, and the divine spark is present in you, then my job is to see it and honor it. To say, it's present. I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister. I disagree with you about this or that, and we build a relationship that bears the weight of truth, and so we have hard conversations, and we have it out. Yes! But I don't decide your fate. I don't say you're in or you're out. I need some deodorant. (laughs) I'm done. Uh, There's a lot there that I wasn't planning on saying, but I just, just really feel in the flow up here. So here's the thing. I'm going to offer a word of prayer. I'm going to invite you to a a few moments of silence to think. And I always say, you don't have to agree with me. Honestly, you really don't. This is the start of a conversation, not the end. So you don't have to agree with me. You can challenge me. You can say, I think you're crazy. Okay. I think you interpreted the text wrong. That's fair. I just want to offer you my, my, my view, my thoughts. Like I go away every week with a backpack and I find some things. I'm like, holy cats you would not believe what I just found. Verses 13 and 14. Watch this. So I hope and pray that what has been said is edifying and true, and if it's not, that you won't remember a word of it. That's my prayer. So pray with me. God, as we take a moment of silence before we sing these last two songs together, there's a lot of questions I have. There's a lot of things I don't know, but these two songs are affirmations of what we do know. So as we move towards that, I pray that in the next few moments of silence that you would speak, Holy Spirit, that you would um, remind us of who this Jesus is and what he was about, that you would invite us to follow, only meaning to pattern our lives after him, to be lovers of our enemies, and people who seem to open the door wider, not close it tighter. So do that in us now, I pray. You can find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter. Community. See you next time.